Right, welcome back everyone to Fastlift's podcast episode 62. Now, this podcast is going to be all about fasting. So uh, I initially did a series of podcasts a couple of years ago now, 2018 on fasting and my experience with fasting. Uh, my experience with fasting goes back a couple of years, sorry, um, goes back 10 years now. And um, so I've been doing fasting in some format for the last 10 years, last decade or so. And uh, I last talked about this a couple of years back on the podcast. And since then, I've been doing some experimentations with various types of fasting, various types of protein sparing modified fasts, and more extreme diets. And I initially, I was very hesitant about talking about these things. Um, but I think as you become more experienced as a coach, you become braver in talking about things that previously you may have thought were uh, not appropriate. But um, I no longer think that's the case. I actually strongly think that um, my previous uh, misgivings about talking about extreme diets were, were actually wrong and I should actually talk about them much more often. And um, I have my thoughts about that, which I'll cover later. But anyway, the main gist of today, the main beginning of the topic, topic of what we're talking about is that I actually fasted for five days a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> this is probably the point where most people are thinking, okay, fast has gone crazy, we'll just switch this off, <laughs> unsubscribe. But I, I wanted to get on and talk about my experience just because for those of you who know me, you know I'm, I'm, a, I'm fairly science-based, I'm a regular guy, I share my experiences, and I, I wanted to be open and honest with what I've been experimenting with and how it's, how it's been. So for those of you who are interested in fasting and my history, I won't go over it all again today. Just go and look at my previous podcasts on fasting. I did two, one on generally on fasting, and it was mostly from a bodybuilder point of view, health point of view, and the other I did for fasting for Ramadan. Um, so for those, for my, for my Muslim followers. So, um, and that was to do with dry fasting, because you don't um, have water either. But anyway, today's topic is gonna be about five-day fast, and also some research that I've come into looking at fasting and caloric restriction. So, firstly, let's talk about the five-day fast. Um, so it was 6th of December that I started the fast. Now, normally when I'm doing a longer fast, so last year in, in July, I did a three-day fast and I sort of worked up to doing it from doing some 24-hour fasts. But at this point, I hadn't done any fasts for a long time. So I just sort of jumped into it and I had it in my head that I was going to do something like a three to five-day fast. Previously, the most I'd done was three days. So I thought, you know, why not? Let's do something like a three to five-day fast. And so I started on Sunday night. And generally, because Monday is my busiest day, so I thought, you know what, we'll just work right through Monday, work right through Tuesday, and it'll just be nice and easy. So that's what I did. So Monday came, Monday went, it was pretty simple. Uh, Monday at about 6 p.m. is normally when I when I sort of eat um, my sort of main meal of the day. So I, I kind of just skipped that, I went upstairs, um, I just played on some computer games for a while, and I just got you know, wasted my time for a while, but it just got my mind off things. The rest of the day was pretty easy. So that was the first day out of the way. Second day came around, and typically what normally happens in the second day is I start to experience um, much lower heart rate and blood pressure. So blood pressure normally, my blood pressure normally hangs about about 110 over 70, so pretty good. Um, my blood, blood pressure started to drop, so it was about 105 over 67, 68, something like that. And so that was... The beginnings of that and I, I thought that's fairly normal second day came second day went again 6 p.m i felt a couple of pangs but it was more to do with me thinking about food and then wednesday came all right day three wednesday and wednesday was actually pretty easy as well because once wednesday came around i was starting to think more along the lines of friday 
Friday being the fifth day. So I thought, okay, Wednesday came and went. I noticed Wednesday night, my blood pressure and heart rate was probably the lowest it's been um, up until that point. And then we went on to Thursday. Thursday was when I started to experience more hunger pangs. So by Thursday, that was when I started to experience and think about food more. So at this point, it had been, what, four days. So understandable, you know, been four days. <laughs> um, and so I, um, I, uh, I, I put it down to it probably being the fact that I was thinking about food more just because I was going to break the fast on Friday. So I was sort of thinking about it more. So in any case, um, Thursday came and went. Um, Thursday night, I did notice that my blood pressure and heart rate were extremely low. And uh, I don't really know why that was. I imagine it's just a consequence of not eating for so long. But heart rate, as I was going to sleep, I remember it getting as low as 38, which is really, really low. Now, I normally hang out at about 51, 52, something like that. So 38 is obviously tremendously low. I mean, 51, 52 is low anyway. But 38 is just ridiculous. So I was going to sleep and I was resting on the, resting my head on the pillow. And um, <laughs> I could just feel my heart rate just slowing right down. And uh, that was sort of freaking me out. So <laughs> then I'd freak up, get back up, and then my heart rate would go higher. Uh, I did that a few times before I went to sleep eventually. And well, I mean, I got up Friday morning, so that's all good, I guess. <laughs> so uh, that was that. And um, once I got up Friday morning, oh, sorry, Thursday evening as well my blood pressure was probably at its lowest. I think it dipped down to about, I think it was like about 95 or 90 over about 50. So pretty low. What would be considered to be hypotension, um, I think. But uh, in any case, Friday morning uh, was probably when I started to, hear, to experience some problems. So at Friday morning, my blood pressure returned back to normal. So overnight, it had gone from very low to what was fairly normal for me. So I think it went up to about, I think it went a little bit higher than it normally is to about 115 over 75, which is still not, uh, still low according to the normal range, normal being about 120 over 80, but it was higher than I normally have it. So that was interesting. And then blood uh, heart rate was also higher as well. So heart rate was more like in the 70 range, which again is higher than I normally see it. So I normally see heart rate at about 52, 50, 51, 52. So being at 70, that sort of freaked me out a little bit. Nothing that I needed to worry about, but it freaked me out a little bit. So I thought, okay, this is interesting, and I wasn't quite feeling right. So that's when I decided, you know what, I think I'm gonna eat something. It's been five days, I think I'll eat something. So I think I broke my fast something like 11 or 12 o'clock on, on the Friday. So technically it'd been about four and a half days. So we'll, uh, no, four and three quarter days. So, you know, we'll call it five. <laughs> um, so yeah, was Sunday to Friday, that was a five day fast. Um, now you'll probably wanna know like how much weight I lost for those of you interested in that. Well, I, I didn't do this for weight loss necessarily. I did this to sort of feel better. I always feel better with fasting. As I say, I've had a long history of fasting. If you look on the previous podcast um, from a couple of years ago, you'll see my history of fasting. And I've always felt better with fasting. And it's one of those things where I've always vowed to not get away from fasting. <laughs> and whenever I do, I tend to feel worse. Um, and I, whenever I fast, I tend to feel better. So at this time, I'm definitely not going to get away from fasting. I'm going to fast, fast on a semi-regular basis. But in any case, so um, yeah, so um, I finished fast. And um, yeah, what was I saying? Oh God. <laughs> so I finished the fast on the Friday. Um, Saturday, Sunday was fairly normal, just kind of refed. And in terms of body weight that I'd lost, I started off on the Monday at 86.3. Friday morning, I was 81.1. So I'd lost 5.2 kilos. Obviously, you're going to lose a lot just by not eating. But what we're really interested in, what was the number 
on Monday morning, you know, once I fed over the weekend. So it was about 83 and a half. So it means I'd lost about three kilos over the course of five days of, of weight loss, which I think is about right. Um, it's probably a little bit higher than I was expecting. I was expecting more like two kilos, because um, if we run the maths on it, five kilo loss would suggest a deficit of about 4,200 calories um, across the five days, which I think was probably a little bit high. So I don't know, either the numbers are wrong or maybe I was a little bit bloated when I, on Monday morning. I don't know. Maybe perhaps I was close to eight, five. In any case, I, I lost and kept off, you know, two or three kilos. So that's pretty cool. Um, but the, the nice thing was I just, I felt, I felt really good. Um, and, uh, I carried that on into the week after. So from the week starting the 14th, I started to do some alternate day fasting. So I fasted all Wednesday, all of Monday, Wednesday and Friday. So roughly 36 hours at a time. And uh, I'm carrying that on this week as well. Obviously not, not this Friday cause it's Christmas day, but that's the plan. So and I feel pretty good. You know, other side effects, I've not done any blood work, um, I've been doing, I've done quite a lot of blood work this year just to check on health. I've not done any blood work recently or during this fasting period over the last month. So, uh, but just in general, subjectively, I feel better. I'm sleeping better. My skin is looking a lot better. I was getting a bit of redness in the cheeks, which I attributed to maybe a bit of rosacea from increased vegetable intake. I, I, I don't know. That's my very non-professional opinion, but um, that's potentially what it was. But um, that's gone now. So my skin is, has, my skin naturally has an olive undertone. So that's, that's back again. So that's great. Heart rate is great. Blood pressure is great, you know, as normal really. But I just generally feel a lot better. My mood feels better as well. I feel more stable over long time. I don't really get any kind of ups and downs and that kind of stuff. It feels quite nice. Um, so that's good. Like I feel, I feel good. Yeah, in general. So, yes. Now, let's, I've written down a few points about kind of what I want to talk about today. So um, when I did the podcast a couple of years ago, um, the main point that I sort of kicked, the, kicked off with was this idea, and it's something that Brad Pilon said, this idea that over the years, many things have been blamed for um, our problems with obesity, like you know, excessive, pro, excessive fat intake, carb intake, too low protein intake, all that kind of stuff. But Brad Pilon said it very simply. He said, well, actually, a big part of the reason is we just eat too much all the time. You know? <laughs> so maybe just stop eating. So rather than stopping to try and manage your protein levels or your carb levels or your fat levels, maybe just stop eating for a while. Right? <laughs> so I love the simplicity of that, you know, so rather than blaming the nitty gritty and trying to be real clever about it, you know, the body's clever enough that we can deal with things. Maybe just stop giving it food for a while. So he said just a couple of times a week, stop eating. And I really like Brad's message. It's really good. But now I guess I want to add to that a little bit. Now, I just want to hit you guys with a statistic. First of all, over here in the UK, um, overweight or obese people comprise of uh, 63% of the population. So that is two thirds of the population are overweight or, obese, are overweight or obese. Now, my question then is, and this relates back to sort of the morality of looking at more extreme diets. My question then is, why would strategies so like extreme diets aimed at those people who are obese not be considered normal now, or at least not be considered in the discussion of what's normal now. Um, and I, I'm just going to briefly, before I move on to the, to the rest of my points, explain what I mean by extreme diets for the purpose of this conversation. Um, for the purpose of this conversation, I would say extreme diets, you can possibly separate extreme diets from just stupid diets. Okay, so extreme diets 
are things like very low calorie diets, but done correctly, you know, with a good amount of protein, good amount of vegetables, or fasting diets, but again, done, done correctly. And stupid diets would be just like, I don't know, juice fasting. Juice fasting literally makes no sense. I'm not, I don't want this to turn into a rant video, so I'm not going to go on to that. But juice fasting, it, it just makes no sense whatsoever. So um, you get all the negatives of actually having processed juice and none of the positives of having less calories. So it's just a moronic thing to do. Um, but anyway, I'm talking about actual diets which are medicinally researched, like protein sparing modified fasts or very low calorie diets or fasting. Okay, these are all medically researched and have good benefits behind them. So that's what I classify as extreme diets. They're very different to stupid diets. Okay? I'm talking about extreme diets. Um, so if we just briefly talk a bit about some of the success stories, like fasting in the research has been, has been shown repeatedly to offer really good advantages when it comes to losing weight, improving health markers, uh, long-term success outcomes, very low calorie diets. So calorie diets you know, in the 400 to 800 region have also been shown to induce very good long-term weight loss. So all these have got good research behind them. And during the last year, I've experimented a lot with very low calorie diets and fasting with my clients. And they've all had very, very good results. So these are extreme diets, which are working for people who aren't genetically blessed when it comes to uh, being lean, mostly obese people, mostly overweight people, who are getting very, very good results with these extreme diets. So that then makes me think, well, there's potentially something there. Um, but that's my experience anyway, and the research supports it. So the other point I want to kind of move on to is, in social media at the moment, a very tired, sort of trite, um, viewpoint is that people uh, we shouldn't really promote extreme diets because they verge on um, sort of eating disorder type of things, which I think is absolute BS. And I want to just address that now. There is no evidence to suggest that that's the case in people who are not predisposed to extreme diets. So the notion that we shouldn't be promoting extreme diets tends to just it's just it's just without foundation first of all. And in my experience, it tends to come from people who have disordered eating backgrounds. So if that's you and you're listening to this right now, feel free to turn off because this is obviously not for you. But, and you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you, you, you feel that way, but like, you have to understand that there, are, there is definitely like, an obesity problem in the UK and, and in America right now. So just saying, look, we're not going to, we're going to shut our doors to all of the approaches which are addressed, at particularly that population, which is now the majority, is, is not right. It's morally and ethically not right. So no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to apologize for that any longer. So I am going to talk about this kind of stuff. Sorry. So I am going to talk about this kind of stuff. And I think it's ethically our right to talk about this kind of stuff because they do have better health outcomes for people who are obese. So just saying we're not going to talk about those for fear of leading people into disordered eating backgrounds, I'm sorry, that doesn't wash with me because equally there's another side to the problem, which is two-thirds of the people in society right now are obese and that's a problem. So if you have this disordered eating background, I don't recommend these diets at all, but these are to be considered, uh, certainly for me, I would say for people who are of the phenotype where they're, they're more likely to be fat. So yeah, I think the whole thing on social media, which tends to come from these people about you can eat what you like and lose weight, and sort of avoid strict diets and all that kind of stuff and be kind to yourself, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's just virtue signaling for me. It's just a way of, it's just a way of 
coming across better as anyone, as, than anybody else. It's virtue signaling. Just saying, well, you know what? I'm going to promote dieting where you can eat whatever you like, eat a pizza a day. It's like, yeah, look, just doesn't work for everyone. And if it works for you, fantastic. That's great. But you are in the minority. Just understand that. And so strict diets and the promotion of those, a lot of times when it, gets, when it starts to take the piss and it starts to go into the realm of, yes, you can eat, you know, I eat pizza every day and I still lose weight, that, then it's virtue signaling. And I don't, I'm not really involved in that. And again, odds are poss quite possibly a lot of people who are giving out that message probably come from a disordered eating background and it's their way of compensating for the way they used to be. Okay, that's cool for you. But again, two thirds of the population are obese and probably need more extreme measures to really correct that. So, and I'll say it again, when, when it's normal to be overweight and obese, why would it not be normal at looking at those strategies which are addressed to those people? So, now, once I've got, I kind of wanted to get that out of the way because that's, that's something which has bugged me for a long time. Mainly bugged me because I used to be very much an apologist when it came to this kind of talk, um, possibly because of the people that I was listening to at the time. But I, I, don't, I no longer feel that way and I think these are good interventions which are worthy of discussion at least. They might not be to everyone's taste, and that's fine as well, but they're not just to be hush-hushed because, you know, oh God, we couldn't possibly talk about that because it's irresponsible. Well, no. Okay, so looking at, I've got a few studies, so I want to look at here. Now, this is an interesting study. It's called Reduced Caloric Intake and Periodic Fasting Independently Contribute to Metabolic Effects of Caloric Restriction. This was an interesting uh, research article which was released this year, March 2020, the reason that this is so interesting and I want to just kick off with it is because this is one of the first few studies which seeks to differentiate between caloric restriction and fasting when it comes to metabolic benefits. So what this is saying is that there are actually independent benefits from fasting relative to just caloric intake. Now this was always a problem when it came to the fasting research because you would get all these, well again, these these virtue signaling assholes who would just turn around and go, yeah, well, the benefits are from the caloric restriction and not from the fasting. And to be fair, I was one of those as well. I would say the same thing because at the time, the research wasn't really there to differentiate the two. But there's more and more research coming out now, which is actually saying that fasting has benefits which are independent of just caloric restriction. Let me just say that again, because that is, if you are involved in the fasting research, if you're up to date on the fasting research, you'll know what such a I'm, I'm, you know what I'm saying, it's a very large statement. What I'm saying is, is, is quite a big statement to make. But yes, this is study here, and possibly a couple like this, show that there are independent benefits to fasting from just caloric restriction. So that is the, uh, that's the study there, and uh, I, I will link these studies in, in, the, um, in the text of where you find this. But um, essentially what this, this looked at, um, different groups, and it, it proposed theories as to how time-restricted feeding and fasting in general has benefits which are above and beyond just caloric restriction. So that's the first thing. Now that is good to get out of the way. Secondly, we've got a study here. This is from also from this year, 2020 May. This is called Caloric Restriction and Intermittent Fasting Impact on Glycemic Control in People with Diabetes. Now, it says people with diabetes. However, as we know, the sort of the diabetes and, and insulin resistance is more on a spectrum. So with this, I think it's wise to understand that being on the spectrum of insulin resistance probably affects a large majority of us, particularly if we're overweight or obese. So this kind of intermittent fasting would probably benefit mostly everyone who needs it in that sense. So this shows that it just have benefits for fasting does have benefits for glycemic control 
in people with diabetes. So it's again, it's worthy of discussion. And the next one that I want to look at was again just another one of benefits of fasting, which was influence of fasting and energy restricting diets on blood pressure in humans. Uh, systematic review and meta-analysis, and that again also points to the conclusion that they all elicit a good response and fasting regimens do it more effectively, they reduce blood pressure more effectively than just regular caloric restriction, which is very good, good to know. Next one is a study on fatty liver. Fatty liver index, this is a um, observational study. Uh, this was released in 2019, October. And again, we've got here periodic fasting, with weight reduction leads to significant improvements of fatty liver index in subjects with and without type 2 diabetes. So again, fatty liver is a huge component of diabetes. Uh, if you look at the twin cycle hypothesis, if we look at that, fasting directly targets fatty liver. And it's, again, it's, it's a, of benefit. So I'm trying to paint the picture here that there are lots of benefits to fasting. And finally, if we look here, the alternate day fasting diet is a more effective approach than calorie restriction diet on weight loss and HSCRP levels. So that was released, uh, yeah, also this year, January 2020. So what this is saying is these findings suggest that a modified alternate day fasting schedule can be a beneficial alternative for the management of body weight, fat mass, uh, as well as coagulation factors among metabolic syndrome patients. Essentially, what this is saying is that amongst those who are already overweight and obese, alternate day fasting actually provided more benefits than just regular caloric restriction. That, that's insanely huge. So again, it points to what I'm saying. For those of you who are the death, these types of fasting and more extreme diets are appropriate for, for those of you who have got metabolic disorders, the metabolic dysfunctions, those who are overweight, who've got metabolic syndrome, potentially more extreme diets like this may actually have more immediate benefits. Which leads me to yeah, what I sort of kicked off with is that it may well be a case that to see long-term good weight loss, we may need to do things like these extreme diets to actually get healthy first, while then potentially in the long term, go to something a bit more normal. But um, again, these are all worthy of discussion. Now, I've hopefully painted the picture over the last one, two, three, four, five studies that intermittent fasting is more beneficial than caloric restriction for a certain subgroup of people. It has been proven in the research now is we're making a fairly strong case that that is the way it is. So these things are at least worthy of discussion. We may point to the fact that, okay, we might not be suitable for most people or some people or whatever. That's fine. You know, that's personal preference is always going to be um, a, a card we can play. But bottom line is the benefits are there for the highly motivated who may be overweight or obese or wanting to improve their health almost immediately, then yeah, we can employ those extreme measures and really see a lot of good benefits. And whereas previously those approaches may well have been poo-pooed or as I've said, they are the realms of the virtue signaling Instagram influencers who talk about how pose every week on Instagram with their pizza saying, yeah, you can eat pizza and lose weight. It's like, yeah, fantastic dude. You crack on with that. Um, if I could uh, eat pizza and lose weight, then I, I wouldn't be looking at uh, research articles on how to lose weight. So there we go. Um, for some people, I think we have to acknowledge that it's a little bit harder and extreme diets may well cause, uh, may well be more appropriate. And I think it's far too convenient just to say, well, yeah, you know what? Maybe you're just not trying hard enough. It's like, you know what? You don't know. 
And there, there's, there's such an overwhelming volume of people who are having difficulties. And yeah, for some of them, they might not be trying hard enough. And we've got to be clinical about that as well. But I think the overwhelming majority of studies now, which look at the benefits of these extreme diets and extreme uh, interventions over regular caloric restriction are proving that actually there is a very, very viable alternative for people who are obese and overweight and want results. So a couple of things that I want to end with, a couple of studies. One, um, this one, which is an older study, it was done in 2000, June, and it's just a quick, short, sharp study which supports what we've known for a long time and has been backed up in recent studies as well, that your, your metabolism actually goes up when you diet. So resting energy expenditure in short-term starvation is increased as a result of an increase in serum norepinephrine. That is a study by Zorner et al. from 2000, um, from year 2000 in June. Um, and we see quite clearly a raise in um, energy expenditure in the sort of like one to four day period. So again, not exactly short term either. I mean, four days is a long time. So in the 84 hour period, you see an increase in metabolism. And also just along the same sort of lines, September 2008, this was a study which looked at cognition, activity and sleep. Um, and it showed that uh, there was no negative effect on cognition, activity, sleep due to um, uh, fasting. And this examined a two-day fasting period, 48-hour fasting period, which showed no negative effects whatsoever. The body made up for it uh, in other ways. So that just ends, if those of you are worried about potentially having brain fog or, um, or metabolism tanking, whatever, it's just, just not going to happen. So my conclusion to this was, one, <laughs> fasting for five days may well be batshit crazy, but there you go. That's, uh, that's me, apparently. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm here. It's okay. Um, now, the other main point about the, all the studies that I've been linking are that we live in a society where the majority now, the 100%, and that's not just a phrase I'm using, but the actual majority, two-thirds of us are overweight or obese. And let's not pretend that we're all walking around muscle like Arnold Schwarzenegger because most of the people aren't, okay? And even your average gym goer, if they've got, even if they've got a bit of muscle on them, are usually still obese. So why would strategies which are aimed at those people, those populations who are now the majority, not be allowed to be put on the table because we're somehow going to damage the sensibilities of people who are worried about eating disorders. I'm sorry, but I'm sorry that those things happen and it's awful, but that shouldn't mean we just dismiss a whole bunch of other people who would benefit from these approaches just because we want to, you know, we don't want to offend people who might have eating disorders. I understand that. And I'm very, um, I'm very sort of sympathetic towards those causes, towards those people. And I do work with people who have got eating disorders as well, but, there's the other side of the coin, is I also work with a lot of people who are overweight and need these types of interventions. So again, it's horses for courses. What's appropriate for different people? And I've done um, podcasts on eating disorders as well, and that's not a topic to be taken lightly, but it's, it's also not a reason to then gaslight research, which is aimed at those who are on the other end of the spectrum and who are overweight. Um, and that's something which we need to bear in mind. There is an appropriateness there. Uh, and I think and I'm still very much disgusted by a lot of Instagrammers who use their sort of diet shaming when it comes to extreme diets. And I think it's just virtue signaling and, and a way of getting likes 
uh, just picturing themselves, you know, on the tail end of a 20 week prep where they've starved themselves with a pizza in their hand, smiling at the camera, just be, and saying, look at me, I'm having pizza while I'm dieting. It's like, banker. So, you know, it's not for everyone. But anyway, that's my point. I hope you've enjoyed this and I will speak to you next time.